Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Harrison Scott Key is a memoirist and humorist, that is to say, a writer of humorous memoirs, and a professor of English at the Savannah College of Art and Design. He's one of the funniest writers out there, as you'll see if you read his memoir, The World's Largest Man, or his columns for the Oxford American. His most recent book is Congratulations, Who Are You Again? Southern Living put Harrison on their list of the 50 best-dressed Southerners, a fact that seems especially perplexing if you've ever seen a picture of him wearing clothes. Uh, Harrison Scott Key, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. I appreciate you making time for us. Man, I'm happy to be here. This is very exciting. I think it, I've known about this for a long time, and we've been talking about this for a long time, so glad we're doing it. It's finally happening. Uh, you are a a memoirist. Yes, um, that is one thing I am. Um, why do you use such a uh, pretentious and Frenchy word to describe yourself? Because I want people to hate me. <laughs> okay. Um, is, it, is it working? It, it, well, I don't know. They hated me before. Now they really hate me. Um, I, you know, writing is, I mean, it's all these choices about what you call yourself and how you're categorized have as much to do with marketing as with reality. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I'm a memoirist because I've written two memoirs, so I think that probably is, is uh, acceptable and totally fine. Um, but, you know, you always get worried, like, well, if you're a memoirist, uh, why, you know, will they ever let you write a novel? And if they do, yeah, right. when I say they, it's like, you know, the gatekeepers, your <laughs> yeah. agent, your editor, you know, yeah. then are they wanting it? Do they want, I mean, like my agent, she was like, like, I'm working on a third book now, and it's kind of memoiric. I mean, it's autobiographical, but it's not about me. It's not about, like, a life journey that I've gone on or anything. Uh-huh. But But I'm a character in it because... It's really hard for me not to be a character in some anything that I write because it's that's just my um, that's my mo. I'm, I'm right. like I'm I'm processing whatever has happened, and so it just seems. I mean, there every writer has to find. <clears throat> excuse me. Every writer has to find their way into telling a story, and mine has always been listen to this thing I did. You know, yeah. Um, which I mean it is absolutely the mark of an egomaniac, and that's <laughs> totally fine. I'm it's I'm entertaining, more entertaining than most egomaniacs. So I can. <laughs> um, but you know, like I, my at my agents, like please don't write another memoir. Please don't. I'm like, but I'm a memoirist. That's what all the podcast interviewers are telling me. She's like, well, just. So I've, you know, I've also written a screenplay, but I don't think anybody's going to call me a screenwriter. I mean, people call me humorist, and I used to look down on that because it sounds like I, mean, I don't want to be like Louis Grizzard. Like I don't want to yeah, be right. that guy. Yeah. You know, but then Louis Grizzard and Jerry Clower made a lot of money, so you know, I don't want to put that down either. But you, you want to keep, you want to have a net. You just, you know, really, you just want to be a writer and an author. But whatever they call you, they got to put you somewhere in the bookstore. And if people, you know, if they put me in the local author section and then I'm introduced as a local author, like that's fine too. <laughs> whatever works. The, um, uh, I have, for whatever reason, that the word memoir um, bothers me. Again, probably because it sounds so Frenchy. But yes. I've tried, you know, calling it memory and things like that. Because I assume memoir is just French for memory. I think. Yes, um, it is. But for whatever reason, that doesn't 
that doesn't quite work. <laughs> I'm going to the memory section of yeah, the bookstore. Right. I'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> no, that's not pretentious at all. Yeah, right. um, no, I think, you know, creative nonfiction is probably, um, you know, people ask me what I write. That's usually my answer. I say I write, I write funny stories, or at least mostly funny. I, yeah. Most of them are, you know, things that happen to me. Um, so creative nonfiction feels like a better, slightly, that's more like a, a species and not a, a genus yeah, right. or, uh, of what it is. But because I do, you know, I've written travel things. I'm still a character in it. I wouldn't call it memoir, but I've written travel mm-hmm. stories. And, you know, I'm, I've written things that are uh, almost newsy type articles. Like, let me tell you about this thing. So it's not really a life journey, but I'm still... I'm talking as Harrison. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I tell people, you know, I write mostly creative nonfiction, but there's no, like, a creative nonfictionist is not a word, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. So, I, I've read both of your published memoirs, by the way. I, th- I loved them, thought they were great. Thank I want to hear about what you wrote before you had sort of found your legs. You know, uh, would you be willing to talk about that a little bit some of your some of your bad memoir before your good memoir? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's all terrible. That's why you haven't read it. If it was good, you'd have read it. <laughs> yeah, right. um, I think you know, telling your story. It's so hard, man. It is so hard to figure out to step outside of yourself and your own ego and your own experience and figure out a way to tell your story in a way that connects with other people. And so you're just naturally going to, going to claw and scrape at it. And, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, I tell people, I I tell students, especially who want to write, like, think about your first two or three times you kissed somebody. (laughs) It's probably makes you wince a little bit when you think about what you probably did. Like, I mean, I stuck my tongue so far down this girl's throat. I, at one point, I, th- I thought she was making sounds of pleasure. I think she was, I think I was killing her. And this was, I think, maybe in like eighth or ninth grade. So that's what it's thinking back to some of those things I wrote before I published my first book is mm-hmm. definitely that same feeling. You know, like, oh, I was just grasping looking through a a glass darkly a little bit, you know, like, and I'll give you an example of what that means specifically. So let's take, because I still have the notebooks of some of the things I've written, I wrote before I really started to get things published. I did publish, I don't know, a, a lot of things before I got an agent and really started working on my first book. So I had some, quote, good things that are out there uh-huh. that haven't been included. But my first attempts at memoir um, or at least first really dedicated, committed, earnest attempts were in, uh, you know, between 2003 and 2009. Okay. That's when I was really try- learning my voice. Um, I really started writing what became, ultimately became my first book, The World's Largest Man. I really started writing that from 2010 or 11 to 2014. Um, I was trying to write it before, but I didn't quite get there. So, I, for example, there, I've got this notebook in my closet that has an early version of some of the stories that ended up in World's Largest Man. And the problem with them is that they lacked a sufficient um, awareness of what was really happening in the story. Hmm. So, <clears throat> there's a... Um, 
you know, they tell you, um, I think this is a Vivian Gornick trope. Uh, she's a, a memoirist as well. Um, the idea of when you're writing memoir, you have to distinguish between the scene and the story or between the better way of saying this is you have to distinguish between the anecdote that you're describing, the thing that happened, and then the real transformation that happened as a result of this anecdote. And so that's the story. So the story, so like when I look back at those older memoirs that I wrote, memoir essays and things, I was just trying to tell a funny anecdote. I was trying to describe the time I killed my first deer Mm -hmm. or trying to describe the time that I, you know, was duck hunting and dropped my gun into the water and how this resulted in basically my ruining Christmas for my entire family. And so when I, if you're just focused on the anecdote, that's like the kind of thing you tell around the campfire or sitting on the front porch. Like, let me tell you about this thing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. It has a lot of twists and turns. It's usually funny or, or surprising, but you're not going to go too deep into what it really meant. So in those early memoirs, that's all I was doing. I was saying like, well, this one time this happened and then uh-huh. this happened and then this happened. And isn't that crazy? And then, I always it, said that, that anecdotes, they're liable to say anything, but what they always say is what a world is this? That's exactly right. Just like, isn't that crazy? You know, it's the kind of thing that we would tell around the dinner table, like, mm-hmm. you know, that where my father would end it with, ain't that some? Ain't that some? <laughs> Takes all kinds or, or yeah, it's right. always some. You know, he would talk about, you know, that his truck blowing up, you know, and then it ended with, it's always some, ain't it? You know, like, I guess. <laughs> I've never had a truck blow up, but I guess in your world that happens. So, yeah, an anecdote is just. Like an odd, it's the kind of thing that you have told more than once because it's a ain't that something kind of story. Now, but a memoir is something very similar, but very different from that. And that figuring that out is the key to writing great memoir, I think. And when I'm Uh teaching it, it's the key because what, what you really, to really figure out what it means. So first of all, you know, it's a good anecdote worthy of consideration because you've told it multiple times so there's something in your heart and in your mind that tells you this story describes a fundamental truth of the human experience i must share it with people whether it's silly or funny you know like Mm -hmm. there's one christmas christmas of 1996 i slept in a small burrow trailer behind between a a fireworks tent and uh, a brothel um, because I was the manager of the fireworks stand and I carried a pistol and a shotgun around and I sold bottle rockets to hoodlums and John's and prostitutes and men on the way home from work. And like, that's an anecdote. Like I can tell that story sitting on a porch and if I'm really feeling it, I can really draw it out for 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. But you know, when you're telling an anecdote, if it gets too serious, it ruins the anecdote, right? Right. Like the listeners just like are like, "Whoa, we're just talking about how life is crazy. You can't be talking about your relationship with your grandfather and that how that resulted in your, you know, becoming a homosexual or and you're leaving your wife." Like, and so an, a, a memoir takes that anecdote and it says, "Why? Mm-hmm. Why were you operating a fireworks stand?" 
at Christmas. You couldn't even go home. Why did you choose? So then it's like, oh, I chose to, that was, I was a senior in college. Mm -hmm. I chose to operate that fireworks stand for some pretty basic reasons. I needed some money and I didn't want to work during the school year because I was in a play that required a lot of work and rehearsal and things. And I thought this is a great way to make, you know, $1,500 in two weeks, which was a lot of money to me in 1996. And it's still a lot of money. But the real reason is, I think I was trying to say, I don't want to be with my family right now. That there's something about, like, I knew my father would want me to hunt. I knew my mom would want me to cut my hair. Mm -hmm. I knew that questions about my changing theology and my changing beliefs about the world would become the topic of conversation. So a memoir goes deeper and asks those questions that animate the anecdote. They're all they're already there when you tell the story, but they're under the surface. A memoir really looks at why that happened, who you are now versus who you were when the anecdote happened, how it changed you, how you're different now. Yeah. So maybe this is really a story about Christmas. Maybe it's not mm. a story about fireworks stand at all. Whereas when I just tell the anecdote, it's a fireworks stand anecdote. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I, I'm, I think it was Eudora Welty who said, you know, Think about what you don't know about what you do know, and <laughs> yes. and I think that's I think that's how you get from that's one way to get from the anecdote to to the underlying story that you're talking about. You know, uh, and you don't I, think about those things consciously a lot. And the and the, the therapist or the person in therapy, the memoirist, the novelist do think about those things. Yeah, I, I often give writing students an assignment of write, basically writing an anecdote. And then they think the assignment's done, and, th- and then I sit them down and say, now I want, you to talk, I want you to think about what you don't know about that story. Because you tell these stories over and over again, and you think you know them. And, you, and in the process, you stop even thinking about what you, – you close off the possibility of even thinking about what they mean unless you really try to, to, do, that, to do that work. And that sounds like what you're talking about here, you know, somehow digging into all these things I took for granted about that story. How do I get to the next – what, yeah, that's a, where they fit. That's a good. I mean, that's a good assignment. You know that. What do you not know? Because that's where the questions come from. You know, why did I do that? Why did that happen? I mean, that's what a good therapist can can. You know, and I hate. I, I used to hate that link between therapy and memoir. That, but there, there's very much a link. Yeah. Because the link is about interrogating why the heck your life is the way it is right now, and it can. You can often. You know, it's usually. Come up with a hypothesis and not necessarily a, a completely provable theory about why your life is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're always hedging. You're always like, I think that's why I did that. I think that's why my mom. Like, I realized. Don't worry, I'm not going to let my mom listen to this. Um, I think <laughs> I was talking to my mom, and I think that she, um, on some level, feel like. So she asked. She asked me all that. So we were. We went to see the Nutcracker with um, my wife and daughters and my mom and I saw the Nutcracker a few days ago and um, after it was over my mom turns to me she's insane and she (laughs) turns to me and she goes why didn't you ever learn to dance like that? (laughs) and I thought my wife looked at my mom like she had asked if she could be a unicorn for Halloween she like looked at her and I was like I said mom I don't know what what is wrong with you right now, but <laughs> wh- why would like wh- what makes her think that I wished I could have become a 
ballet dancer. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to say like if she knows I play the drums. If we saw a great drummer and she and she goes, "Do you regret not, you know, choosing that as a career?" Like, I get that, but ballet. And so for the rest of the day, I kept I, I would ask, I'd, I'd stop and go, "Mom, why didn't you ever teach me how to play the hammer dulcimer when I was young?" And she kind of looked at me funny, and then a few minutes later, "Mom, why didn't you ever let me dig a well in the backyard?" And she's like, "Why are you saying that?" But it's what I so here here's the point is that. I actually think that my mother feels guilt for not um, seeing my creative side more clearly when mm. I was younger yeah. and letting my dad sort of run roughshod over my life, <laughs> which, of course, if you've read the books, you know that story. Yeah. And I think that she feel. I think those questions are her way of saying, I wish I had found I wish I you hadn't been 25 before you realized you should be doing something creative for a living. And so that's that's what memoir does. Memoir says, "Why is she always doing that?" So yeah. like, so the anecdotalist is the stand-up comedian, right? They're telling the funny thing and letting the truth of it just kind of exist quietly and visibly. Mm-hmm. But the memoirist goes one step further and says, I think my mom is doing that because she has guilt. Maybe she doesn't. And you, my mom is perfectly free when she reads, if I wrote that in a story or if she listens to this podcast, she's perfectly free to, t- to take me aside or at the dinner table in front of everybody and say, why did you say that? I don't think that's why I'm doing it at all. And that's okay. You, the memoirist has to be comfortable with other people contesting their hypothesis mm-hmm. about the family or about their experience. And as long as you're comfortable with that, you can write whatever you want to write as long as you think that it's a sound hypothesis. Yeah, that's great. And she can write her own memoir if she wants to. You know, I've told her that she should and that nobody would buy it or read it, um, but that uh, I would support her in that in that life goal. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, that, but this uh, this connection between memoir and um, and therapy uh, really is interesting. And and, and 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 anecdote is kind of a middle ground. I mean, in between it, it, it doesn't. Yeah, you know, it's not. It's not memoir. It's it's sort of the raw material for. Well, it, if we're putting it in terms of therapy, I mean, it's it, it's it's the raw material for the um, for the counselor or the therapist to say, "Tell me more about that." You know? Yes, totally. um, you know, I know. Uh, my wife and I went to marriage counseling for a little while, and um, and one of the issues, you know that came up is why am I always telling, you know, trying to tell anecdotes instead of talking about my feelings or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the counselor, he, he used a phrase that I've, I use on a regular basis ever since he says, don't, you know, he told my wife, he, he's telling sad, these are sad stories told for laughs, mm-hmm. which I thought about all the time when I was reading, uh, the world's largest man, by the way, these, these are, these are sad stories told for laughs. <laughs> That would be a good subtitle. <laughs> yeah, right. I did a, um, I did a, a, a series of, of interviews for the the Rabbit Room website in which I uh, would would talk to um, uh, performers, mostly performers or artists of various kinds, about their most um, um, spectacular humiliations. Mm, yes, and the, the it was called "Sad Stories Told for Laughs." You're a humorist. Um, you're interested in in. Um, you tell funny stories in, in a way that that sort of that that shooting for um, some truth beyond just a funny story. Yeah, yeah. I think 
I think that's kind of you to say. I mean, that's definitely something I've tried to do. I don't. I didn't. I wasn't always trying to do that. I didn't really understand. I mean, I think I would have. I took an aesthetics class in college. I understood that you know that truth was something good to want out of art. Um, maybe not. Maybe not propositional truth. Mm-hmm. Um, at least not that sort of propositional truth that can be disputed, you know, and I mean, a a higher sort of propositional, a hyper propositional truth maybe. But I I think I always knew that, but as an actual person trying to write stories, I really just wanted to make people laugh. I didn't get that the truth is why people were laughing and that the sadness was why people were laughing. You know, I mean, I think every anecdote is a sad story. Uh, Every anecdote ever told is a sad story, and even the even the ones that seem um, like funny party stories that you tell, even that's a sad story. Like everything is rooted in some sort of like life really screws you up every once in a while, doesn't it? Isn't that just like life? Just like you said earlier. I mean, that's sad. The idea is that, like, you know, bad things happen. Listen to this one bad thing that happened. It was hilarious because it happened to somebody else, you know? And so I think every anecdote is a sad story. Um, and especially, you know, you when there's truth there, the truth is, like, you, you even if it's a happy story about your happy Christmas in 1985, you're sad because it's gone. You're mm-hmm. sad because that was, you know, I don't know, 80 years ago. I can't do math. It was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so I do think every story is a sad story. And I, But when I was re- first started writing, I was just trying to make stories funny. I didn't realize that yet. I think my heart knew it. I think my heart knew that truth was in sadness and comedy was embedded in that somewhere but my my medulla oblongata did not know and i'm sorry my cerebellum did not know it and so as i'm writing these funny stories like this earlier memoir stuff i told you about i thought something's flat here something doesn't something's missing i was like oh it's not funny because it's not sad yet wow okay that's and i I can make it funny if I can figure out why this makes me so sad. And then when I figured that out, then it really started, it really comes alive. It's, hmm. it's a weird dance though. Cause if you just, if you're just thinking, let's make it funny, it won't be funny. And if you're just thinking, let's make it sad, it probably will be sad and nobody will read it. And so you have, so it's this weird dance. Um, but once I realized, Oh, a story is about truth and that's what, Otherwise, it's just stand-up comedy. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I mean, I could I could do stand-up comedy. I could leave my wife and children and move to Atlanta and do that, and <laughs> probably have a sitcom within five years. Like I could totally do that. But I like my family, and I'm not going to leave them. And so, writing stories that get to truth somehow feels much more meaningful to me um, than just telling anecdotes. Just being mm-hmm. funny. Okay, you know, I do think some of my, even some stories in World's Largest Man. I, I read some of that. And I'm like, oh wow, it took me a long time to get to the real stuff in that story. You can tell like that I snorted some horse or something. It was just really trying <laughs> to be funny, mm-hmm. and I wince a little bit when I read some of those stories. But I do think they're very funny. Yeah, they are funny. Um, you in your in your second book. Um, Congratulations! Who are you again? Did I get that title right? You did. Um, you, describing sort of the memoir you were writing before you figured out how to do it. Um, you said, and I'm, "I'm reading here." 
it was a derivative work of nonfiction that was such a poor representation of memory and history that it seemed to cheapen everything that mattered from my past. Um, I want to hear more about that. I mean, it's, in, in what way did did your did that those early attempts earlier attempts cheapen the stories you were? I mean, maybe it's what you've already been talking about. Yeah, I think it's exactly what we've been talking about. That um, I I was t- I was taking sort of the most memorable anecdotes from my life, many of which I have told in different forms, whether I was like, you know, I, I was in a uh, performance studies class. I was in several performance studies classes where we wrote monologues about our past or whatever, and we would perform them for the other grad students. Um, and I, so I was taking these stories that I had done lots of different things with. I When I did stand-up comedy for a short period, I told some of these stories. When I wrote monologues, I told these stories. So I took, I was taking these stories and I was just writing them down for laughs. I was just writing them down to be like, this crazy thing happened and then this crazy thing happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm not there, I mean, if I'm telling the story in front of five or ten people, you know, I'm pretty animated. I do funny voices. I, you know, my facial expressions, my physicality, mm-hmm. I can, re- I, I'm, you know, fairly good at, at, uh, capturing the attention of most everybody in an audience there's uh-huh. always a lot of people who want to don't want to hear me talk and would love me to shut up and, and that yeah. as in any group but yeah. um that's all i was trying to do but then i realized when i'm writing the story i'm not there to do the funny voices hmm. to enchant to get loud and get quiet and be a you know preacher at revival yeah. so there's there was I, so I was really trying hard to put all that in the words and what happened was the thing that quote cheapened everything about my past is that it was just like a clown show it was a total it was a total burlesque of anything resembling truth it was just trying to be silly and zany like every moment that could be funny every possible description that could be funny i would highlight and i totally ignored like what my dad was trying to teach me in that story or what lessons i actually pulled out of my own experience from that and so when I went back to re- when I really broke through and figured out my voice, I realized I can make it funny and I can still say true things in them, and that's when it really clicked for me. Ah, um, I, I sometimes when I when I read stories that students have have written, you know, two two different. I mean, lots of things happen, but here, here are two things that happen. Um, one is that that somebody will just write a quiet little story about a something that's not especially funny and that's not especially earth shattering, and they're self conscious because it's neither funny nor earth shattering. But as it turns out, the very fact that they wrote it at all dignifies the moment. The fact that they that they let a small moment be a small moment and didn't feel the need to inflate it or exaggerate it or or whatever, it just feels like you just dignified this moment by acknowledging, just by telling it telling it straight. And then on the other hand, I, I get, you know, the, the flip side of that is the students who feel like I've got to, to ratchet this up with, you know, hyperbole or, or whatever. And it just feels like you undignified this moment by not telling the truth about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I mean, I, you know, it's I guess it really depends on the tone of the student, how, how they describe things. For example, 
I am a, a naturally ridiculous person. Mm-hmm. I that's how I talk. I mean, that's you know <laughs> when you and I were just talking, like that's just that's how I think, and it's yeah. how my mind works. And so for me, um, to to when I take a story and try to make it sound writerly, yeah, and make it sound maybe even simple. That can for me that can undignify it, right? Uh-huh. That can take a, because it doesn't sound like Harrison. Yep. Doesn't sound like me, you know. Like when I gave my father's eulogy, it was really funny. It may have been the funniest thing I'd ever delivered for an audience. <laughs> and it was so sad. By the end of it, I was bawling, uh, and everybody was crying except my children, who were like, "What is happening right now?" <laughs> um, but it was so it was so funny. Um, so for me, it's like. It's not that I'm making it funny externally. I'm not. Ma- right. I'm, I'm not or artificially making it funny. Like if I tell a story funny in in a way that Harrison is funny, yep. then that's that I'm actually giving you the truth because I'm mm-hmm. giving you like here's how it felt to be that. But I have written. A, but I totally hear what you're saying too because I wrote a couple of things that ended up in the first book that were just every now and then I will take off the pressure. And I think the more I've written, the better I've gotten at it. Of, you don't have to be funny. You don't have to. You're not. You're not trying. You're not earning the favor of a live audience who might walk out at any moment. Yeah. You are writing for a reader. They bought your freaking book. Or somebody gave it to them. They are sitting down and reading it. You can calm down a little bit, yeah. Harrison. Just <laughs> tell and just say what happened, and then maybe you go back and maybe you make it funny, a little funnier, or maybe you uh-huh. you quiet it down or make it a little louder. But there was a moment. Um, there were a couple of moments in the first book where I just said, "Stop trying to be funny and just say what happened." And if you say what happened really stoically, it might actually sound funny. Yeah. And so I did. I think that Charles Portis is excellent at that. Oh man, and I love that. He's, yeah. he's my you know my favorite living novelist. He's still mm-hmm. with us, and his his work is so. I love his work so much because it's so. Um, he just describes things how they are. And uh, and I've tried to do that more and more the older I've gotten. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our of our time, uh, but I always end with this question: Who are the writers who make you want to write? Well, I said Portis, and he's yeah. definitely one because what I like about him is it's not just his sense of humor, but he's writing stuff that's very southern and it feels southern mm-hmm. um but it also feels very universal it doesn't it's not corn pone it's not yeah. cliched mm-hmm. you know i love that he tells a story that's a southern story but it takes place you know in the 70s at little rock and in yeah. central america like that's yeah. great uh, yeah. so i love the, the freshness of that um who else you know it's really you know of course you know Flannery O'Connor is a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read, I haven't read her novels or her shir- short stories in probably two or three years. I, I go back to them every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of Lewis Norton. I don't know uh, Lewis Norton. Oh man, you got to listen. You got to you got to you got to read Wolf Whistle. Okay, uh, which is this really funny and sad um story it's essentially a fictionalization of the murder of emmett till really 
and but it is so weird and funny it's funny because the 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 tangential characters are just so pathetically sad Uh um and they're and the main character who's murdered it he's like his ghost narrates part of it and there are like there are turkey buzzards who date back to the civil war who are still (laughs) like, there's like a colony of them who are still alive and they have a memory. It's so weird and interesting. Um, and it's very funny. There are passages in it that are just like heartbreakingly funny. Hmm. And to do that in a novel that fictionalizes one of the great tragedies of American history. Yeah. Uh, is so strange. And that's what I love about it. Like that's ballsy. That is so amazing. And, and not just that, but like a white guy from Mississippi was the one who wrote it. Like how (laughs) that gives me a lot of hope for upsetting, hurting people's feelings. Um, that's his best and and most well-known work is, uh, Wolf Whistle. Um, definitely Flannery O'Connor. You know, I love, I, I just love Shakespeare still Mm -hmm. for the plots. Uh, and how how complex and how keen on what it's like to be a human. Um, what am I reading lately? I'm reading. Uh, I just read The Natural, um, Bernard Malamud's uh-huh. book, uh, for the first time, and I thought it was fi- really funny. Um, even though I've it's kind of, a, I think it's kind of a sad movie. I've never seen the movie, but it's a very funny book, and I loved it. I'm reading um, a totally disgusting book right now called the fermata by um nicholas baker uh and it's really funny but kind of it's kind of sleazy and i like it's weird it's a book that would be really fun to teach because it has a lot of debates you could have students debating like is this ethical what the characters are Mm. doing and whatnot um you know but i don't really have i mean i read something every month that makes me wish i had written it and yeah. I don't really have like like I said I love Portis I love Lewis Norton I love Flannery O'Connor, yeah. um, but on some level those are probably fairly predictable answers, being from the South and you yeah. know being a white guy and and yeah. being a believer, totally yeah. predictable. But I just I love getting uh, anything that, that that I read that casts a spell over me and makes me stop thinking that I'm reading a book and just puts me into the mind of a character man i love it i, yeah. I hope I'm, i i will do that long after i've stopped writing <laughs> it's like getting uh extra life it is it sure is yeah all right well harrison thank you so much for being here this has been a lot of fun thanks man i appreciate your questions i hope we can talk again soon let's do it all right the rabbit room has partnered with lipscomb university to make this podcast possible Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. 
To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.